Good morning, LLC. My name is Rachel. Here from the word found in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 1 to 17. After the king was settled in his palace and the Lord had given him rest from all his enemies around him, he said to Nathan the prophet, Here I am, living in the house of cedar, while the ark of God remains in the tent. Nathan replied to the king, Whatever you have in mind, go ahead and do it, for the Lord is with you. But that night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan, saying, Go and tell my servant David, this is what the Lord says. Are you the one to build me a house to dwell in? I have not dwelt in a house from the day I brought the Israelites up out of Egypt to this day. I have been moving from place to place with a tent as my dwelling. Wherever I have moved of all the Israelites, did I ever say to any of their rulers whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now then, tell my servant David, this is what the Lord Almighty says. I took you from the pasture, from tending the flock, and appointed you ruler over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone, and I have cut off all your enemies from before you. Now I will make your name great, like the names of the greatest men on earth, and I will provide a place for my people Israel, and will plant them so that they can have a home of their own and no longer be disturbed. Wicked people will not oppress them anymore, as they did at the beginning and have done ever since the time I appointed leaders over my people Israel. I will also give you rest from all your enemies. The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he will be my son. When he does wrong, I will punish him with a, with a rod wielded by men, with floggings inflicted by human hands. But my love will never be taken away from him, as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. Nathan reported reported to David all the words of this entire revelation. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, good morning on this uh, 36th uh, anniversary for our church. Uh, this morning as I was coming to to LLC, I was just reminded of uh, some memories just popped back into mind, how much I love our church here, uh, how this is uh, the place where I got baptized, uh, the tank right behind me. It's the place where I came to fall in love with the Lord, how God brought some godly men uh, and women uh, to shepherd me all these, all these years, and all the retreats we've been on, all the places where we've served them in missions and ways we've served South Hill uh, so this church definitely, and you as the church, uh, hold this very dear and special place uh, in my heart. And this morning, your nostrils are filled with the food, uh, the aroma of the kitchen. I was joking with the kitchen staff this morning. I'm like, oh, can you smell the cooking? I'm like, I can smell it from my house. Uh, I don't live that close. I was just joking with them how they've been, uh, since this morning in the early hours, been prepping. So if you I are free to join us for a meal afterwards. I know they're diligently cooking uh, downstairs, and you're more than welcome to celebrate uh, with us. As I was praying, uh, c- coming, up to this, uh, coming up to this weekend, I was like, God, what would you have 
to say? What do you have to say to us this morning as a church, as we go into, uh, as we're in the 36th year? And for me as a pastor here, as I serve, as I'm coming up to my 10th year as well, uh, serving in full-time ministry here at Lord's Love, God, what would you have to say to me personally, but also to us as a church, as, as, as a people? And I was hearing uh, through the word the question of, I wonder what perspective in which we live life through. I wonder, I often wonder the perspective we take in making decisions or the actions that we have. We wonder, do we have this kind of eternal perspective or do we kind of think in the moment? Uh, we think of the decisions we need to make right here and right now. There's a poem uh, written in 1886. I'm bringing it all the way back, uh, not just 36 years ago, 1886, and it was called, Oh Great God. And as the story is written, how it's recounted about this Carl Boberg was, uh, was walking back from church, back to his house in Sweden. The account goes like this. Carl Boberg and some friends were returning home from Monasteres uh, back to Kronenbach, uh, where they participated in afternoon service. And, and, and presently, there was this thunderstorm that appeared in the horizon. The storms were forming. The, the thunderclouds were forming, and thunder and lightning was in the clouds. And as quickly as the clouds came... As the account comes, they dissipated by the time he walked home, which wasn't too far of a walk. And this spurred him to write this poem called, Oh Great God. And there's been a couple of translations of this poem since then. Uh, But in 1949, uh, Stuart Klein, while he was listening to a Russian translation of the German translation of this poem, uh, he came to encounter God, and he decided to write it uh, in a more modern way, uh, a modern version in which we often sing today, which is How Great Thou Art. It was through, that was the genesis of that song, How Great Thou Art, was how God, as, as soon as there's turmoil in the world and all the chaos in the world, God has the power to transform and to change. And he added a, a, a verse 3, which I'm not sure if I have it. No, I don't have it on there. A verse 3, which goes, And when I think that God, his son not sparing, sent him to die, I scarce can take it in. That on the cross, my burden gladly bearing, he bled and died to take away my sin. That as he wrote that song, uh, song onto that song that's already been written, uh, I wonder if he knew the echoes it would go on uh, for the next many decades, 75 years actually. I was reminded of this. Mad Redman, another uh, famous worship pastor, recently wrote a, a rendition. It was called Matt Redman and Friends. I don't know. It was 16 other uh, worship leaders singing to this track, uh, 75, celebrating 75 years of this. And I'm, I wonder, when Carl Boberg, when he wrote that song in 1886, that poem, whether he would know the ways that it would change Christians from around the world, singing, How Great Thou Art. I wonder if Stuart Klein, as he added that third verse, knew of the change and the impact it would make. I wonder today, as we go into our 36th year as a congregation, I wonder for us as Christians, whether we know the impact that we make, how it would transcend time and how it would change the world, or do we think in the moment here, this right here and right now? You see, King David, he had a short-term perspective. He really wanted to build God, uh, a temple uh, to house the Ark of the Covenant, which represented the presence of God. That's what he really wanted to do. He had this short-term perspective on building a temple for God, but God had eternal plans for him. He had greater things for him. And that leads us to the big idea this morning. We think we're building God a house, 
But God is actually the one building up our house. We think we're doing these great things for him, and we go, maybe we come to church, or we go to fellowship, we read the Bible, and we pray, and all those things are good and part of our formation, and we think that we're building God a house. We do all these things like, God, this is what you need, but God the whole time actually has been building up our house, and he's really good at it. He's really good at building up his own house. He knows what he is doing. See, God's covenant, as we'll dive into a little bit later today, it upholds our lives through all things. No matter what we as a church go through, no matter what we personally go through, God's covenant upholds our lives through all things. And we're reminded in, in Matthew 7, 25 to 26, the rain came down, the streams rose, and winds blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall. Why? Because it had a foundation built upon the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. There's an understanding here that God is that foundation. His covenant, his promise is, the, uh, is what's undergirding the foundations of, of his church. And when, what God says, it will come to pass. So that's the promise for us this morning, LLC, for, for us church as a congregation, as we go forward, that's not under our own strength, it's not under our own power, but it's a reminder of his covenant, his promise for us. What is a covenant? I like the Bible Project. I recommend it to anyone. Uh, they'll make very good videos that explain deep biblical truths. The Bible Project is fine covenant in this way. A covenant is a relationship between two partners who make uh, binding promises to each other and work toward, uh, together to reach a common goal. They're often accompanied by oaths, signs, and ceremonies. Covenants define obligations and commitments, but they're different from a contract because they're relational and personal. Uh, Christy, our worship leader, mentioned marriage and weddings. That's definitely a covenant uh, that we see that's made. We think of membership as a church, and we make a covenant to one another, uh, to the members of the church saying, hey, I promise to keep hold of you and to make sure you get discipled here and that you follow Jesus. And in the same way, you hold the church firm uh, in, in our calling as well as a church, as the church a member here. So I like that. It's a covenant. It's a promise accompanied by oath signs and ceremonies that is deeper than just a contract. Um, and we get this understanding of biblical covenants that no matter how many times we break the covenant, how many times we fall away and we reject God, God keeps hold of his covenant, his promises to his people. As to Old Testament scholar Paul R. Williamson writes, covenants between God and human beings form a unifying thread in Scripture form a unifying thread in Scripture from their conceptual introduction to, in Genesis to their eschatological, like the ending, fulfillment in Revelation. Although theologians differ among the precise number and nature of such divine covenants, few question their theological significance in relation to redemptive history, meaning that covenants throughout Scripture remind us that God holds firm to his promises. When the people of God start waning, when life starts getting difficult, when the church starts waiting, waving off on the wayside and we, we get the pressure from society to believe something else, God in his covenant holds us firm and reminds us of what a relationship with him are like. And it's arguable how many covenants there are. I'll just, the popular uh, understanding of the covenants, there's five major ones of them. Uh, there's the Noahic, the tough word, I practiced that this week, Noahic covenant, made with Noah, the Abrahamic covenant, the Mosaic covenant, Davidic covenant. And then there's a new covenant uh, through Jesus that's made for people that 
uh, in, the, in the New Testament, uh, for those that are uh, uh, from Christ onwards, for those of us that have this faith and hope in Jesus Christ, there's this new covenant made for those people, that for all, those of us that don't come from the is, uh, Jewish uh, lineage, that we're grafted into the tree as we read in, uh, in the letter to the Romans. So there's a lot of covenants throughout Scripture that remind us of the promises of God, that remind us of the promises you see, there's a lot that's happened up to this point in 2 Samuel chapter 7. There's a lot of wars that's been going on, a lot of battles. If you read through the first six chapters, there's a lot of beheadings <laughs> that you'll read. And you think about if the Bible is boring and it's not much goes on, just read the first six chapters of 2 Samuel. You're like, wow, that's gory. There's a lot of action going on. There's a lot of betrayal going on. There's a lot of a backstabbing going on. And and, and, and David, in the beginning, hears how Saul, uh, his predecessor, was after David when Saul heard that David is to take on the kingship. So Saul makes, goes, uh, is hell-bent and off to get uh, David, and David runs. But ultimately, Saul dies, and David is told of the story, how Saul is dead, and all of David's followers are like celebrating Saul is dead. But David, what he does actually mourns. He fasted and prays for for, for, for the situation for Saul and his family. He's saying, this is not good. He's still Israel's king. So though he betrayed Israel and betrayed God, and he went off on the wayside, he's still chosen by God during that time. So David, instead of mocking Saul, he prays for Saul and his family, fasted. So a lot of battles, a lot of murders, there's a lot going on. In fact, David's followers as well goes on and tries to kill off, kill off the lineage uh, off of the uh, Saul's uh, lineage. But David's like, why are you doing this? You know, the, my, my, the covenant, the promise that God has with me is firm and secure. You don't need to force things to happen. What God says will come to pass. And then 2 Samuel also talks about the Ark of the Covenant coming back into Jerusalem. And just before this chapter, we, we get the image uh, of, uh, we get the story told of how the Ark is being brought back to uh, Jerusalem. Uh, from, this other, uh, from this other town, and every six steps that they took in honor of remembering the covenant, remembering the presence of God, they made a sacrifice of a bull and of a fattened calf, every six steps. And scholars have calculated it's around 30,000 steps from that town to, up to Jerusalem. So they made some 5,000 sacrifices. Every six steps, they made a sacrifice to remember what God has done for them. And just before this passage, too, you read King David uh, rejoicing in his underwear, basically, his undergarments. He's happy that the Ark of the Covenant is coming back into Jerusalem, so he's dancing, and his wife sees from the palace and rebukes the king when he comes back. Like, how can you do this? Did, did you not see all the servant girls, like, watching their king, like, in, their, in, his, in his undergarments dancing? Like, that's not good. And, and King David's like, I'll be even more undignified than this. You know, I'm not sure what that means. Uh, but he was like, I can even be more outrageous for the Lord because I, I can't keep down my celebration. I can't keep down my joy. But it was after everything that went on that David was able to get some rest. After all the celebration, after all this turmoil, after all this history, all this battle, all this running away, King David was able to get some rest. And that we see that it was out of this rest that David was finally able to reflect. Which is maybe why, as a church, we're going into a series for most of the year on spiritual disciplines and what it looks like to listen and to rest and to be with God. It was after all of this 
that King David was able to rest and he was able to reflect. We read in verse 1, uh, in verse 1 here in chapter 7, after the king was settled in his palace and the Lord had given him rest from all his enemies around him, he said to Nathan the prophet, here I am living in the house of cedar while the ark of God remains in a tent. Nathan replied to the king, whatever you have in mind, go ahead and do it for the Lord is with you. It was out of this peace and quiet that he was finally able to reflect. And where did his reflections bring him? He, his reflections brought him. He's like, wow, I'm sitting in his palace, and life is good. Life is good. But what about God? What about God? What about his ark? Like, God needs the place to be housed. And he, God has his thoughts later after this, which I'll get into. But he says, here I am, living in a house of cedar, while the ark of God remains in the tent. And can we just note the plea that David has here? the plea that he has, that he realizes life is good and that there ought to be a response. He didn't know what to do because he's no longer in battle. His armor is set to the wayside. He was like, that's my way of worshiping God and my way of following God's calling for that season seems to be done and that's on the side. He didn't just sit and just be like, I'm done. He's like, God, how else can I serve you? Can we just take note of that? During the season of rest, he was only as during that season of rest he's able to hear that. And I wonder, as I was convicted by this passage this week, that how many of us, we fall into this contentment, this, we fall to the wayside, and we kind of think, well, that's it. Like, God actually doesn't, um, I just sit in my own comfort, and everything is good and fine and dandy. And yes, God blesses us with immeasurably more than what we could ask for or ever imagine. But do we think about the other side? Do we think about God's house? Do we think about his people? Do we think about the state of his church? Do we think about uh, what's going on in the city? And, and we think, God, like, what is it that you're calling me to do now? And as a church here, yes, we're the English ministry. But do we think about the other congregations that go on? Do we think about the Mandarin ministry? And some of you are like, we have a Mandarin ministry? <laughs> do we think about the Cantonese congregation who planted the church? Right? We're celebrating 40 years uh, of when it first came to being in, in Marple Community Center. We'll talk about that later this year in the dance studio with some 20, 30 people. And that's blossomed into what we have now, right? Like in this moment where we're living and we have a house of cedar in a sense, do we think about what else is going on and how else God is at work? And there's this holy discontentment that stirs inside of us. But it's hard. I say it not so easily. It comes out easily, but it's not so easy to do. There's so much that tries to get our attention. There's so much in the world that distracts us from God and his calling. It was out of David's experience, though, of God's greatness that led to his response in wanting to build God a temple, to house his temple, house the Ark of the Covenant. So he goes to Nathan, a prophet, his trusted confidant and friend, and Nathan says, Whatever you have in mind, go ahead and do it, for the Lord is with you. It sounds contradictory, but it's really not, because I believe that King David actually had a pure heart here. King David's like, I have this passion to do great things for God, and Nathan's like, I recognize that in you, so go ahead and do it, whatever you have in mind. Why? Because you're asking out of this pure heart that it truly is to bless God, not out of the selfishness, not out of what you want to do or what you want to see the church to be, uh, what the temple to be. But it's actually out of, it is actually out of, of God, out for God. But I think about this, I'm like, 
what can David actually offer God? Ever thought about that? Like, he's like, I want to build him a temple, and we'll get into that again. But what can he actually offer God? I think about myself, what can I actually offer God? Every single Sunday morning, I come up as a broken man, imperfect man, standing beside you here, preaching the word of God. I'm like, what else can I have to offer? What else do, 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 can, can I give? And maybe you, you, you resonate with that in life. We, we come before God, and we're like, I want to serve you, but what else can we serve? What else can we do for a God that has everything? It's kind of like buying that birthday present, right? <laughs> for some, that one person that has everything. You go down the list of what's, you know, someone's birthday is coming up, top 10 gifts of 2024, like whatever that is. And, well, that person has all 10, so what do I do? I'm just going to sit down and defeat and buy nothing and do nothing. God has everything, and what can we actually offer to him? He's like, I don't need anything. But really, what he desires is this relationship, this understanding of the covenant, the promise that he has with you and with me. You see, we don't actually get to choose what we do for God because God has already ordained and called and gifted and dispensed according to his own sovereignty, to his wisdom. In fact, God, he doesn't need any favors. He doesn't need us to do anything for him. David's going to build him a temple, and we read here that God's like, I don't really need any of that. I don't really need. But that night, thank God that he intercedes and intersects, and he changes our direction. But that night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan, saying, go and tell my servant David, this is what the Lord says. Are you the one to build me a house to dwell in? I have not dwelt in a house from the day I brought the Israelites out of Egypt to this day. I have been moving from place to place with a tent as my dwelling. Wherever I have moved uh, with all the Israelites, did I ever say to any of the rulers whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, why have you not built me a house of cedar? God's like, did I ever say I needed a house? David, your motives are pure. Surely I see your heart. But did I ever say I needed a house? Did I ever say, let's just pay attention to that word this morning. How many of us have acted on something that God never has actually said? Oh, man. How many of us have actually acted upon something that God never has actually said? We have to be careful and to listen. No matter how pure the motives that's going on. As a church, as a congregation, no matter things, the great dreams that we think we have, we have to be clear that this is what God has actually said. You see, God's going to say to David, you know, building of the temple, that's not for you. That's going to be reserved for Solomon, uh, for your son. You see, David, God knew probably wasn't as good of an architect, maybe a, build, a building plan manager. He comes up with, the, he comes up with the, uh, the goods that are needed. He writes it all out, and he kind of designs it. He's part of all of that, uh, that work. But no, God's like, David, that, that's not what you're going to be used for. That's going to be Solomon. Solomon's much better of a builder than you are. You're going to write psalms. David, you're going to write the psalms. You're going to write psalms so that the temple can be filled with the aroma of praises to me. That's what you're going to do. You're not going to build the, the temple, but you're going to build the, uh, the, the filling of the temple, of my presence, of, for the people. You're going to arm and equip for the people of God to worship me. That's going to be your role, David. See, God, he sees the whole picture, and he knows perfectly what's needed and who's needed in order for it to be done. We read in James 4, 
how often we, the, the rebuke for us, right? We think we have great plans for God, but we read in James 4, now listen, you who say, today or tomorrow we will do this or that, uh, or uh, we'll go into this or that city, spend a day there, carry on business and make money. Why you do not even know what will happen tomorrow? What is your life? You're a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogant schemes. All such boasting is evil. If anyone then knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, it is sin for them. During the leaders' retreat last week, we went around the table just sharing our Myers-Briggs again. And there's a website called 16 Personalities. I recommend you to take it. And it gives you your Myers-Briggs as accurately as possible. All inventories are limited. And it gives you a cute little figurine of what that kind of represents. I'm a, apparently an ESTJ. I flip back and forth between an ESTJ and ENTJ. But an ESTJ is the executive. And I'm known for uh, thriving in order. I want order, I want the foundation to make sense, and out of that order and foundation, everything else flows. Uh, step number 10 didn't make sense because step number one didn't, right? So that's kind of my way uh, of thinking. Uh, but I need to confess that as I came to realization last week again that this beauty, some people come up to me and they're like, hey, there's, how do you fit so much in your life? There seems to be such order, you're able to accomplish so much, you follow up through with your goals, and they don't know underlying underneath all of that. It's actually a mask for my pain. That the beauty seen in my life, it's actually also my psychosis. That the beauty uh, in the order, my desire for order, is actually my psychosis as well. It's actually the same thing that drives me crazy. I can use that word. That word that's burrowing deep underground. I stand up here as a pastor every Sunday, and I hold delicately what I want and what God wants. And there's this struggle deep inside of me. I struggle with control and having everything in order. But all of that is to mask the deep down pain I have of the, lie, of the time, of times of disorder. How my fear is that when there's disorder, all everything is going to go down the drain. That there's going to be chaos, that there's going to be pain. See, there's things that we do in life that we think are really for God, but it's really a way of us masking our own pain and our own suffering. And some of us, in our own brokenness, we conjure up what we think it means to live out our mission for God. The mission for God, or missio dei, as the theological term goes, the mission of God, which refers to the work of the church, of being part of the church, that when we don't bring our whole selves, the broken parts to God, it manifests in itself through other ways in our relationships, in the work for the church, uh, in, our, in, our, in our ministry, in our career, in the way that we rest, in the way that we see life, that we don't wrestle and bring it out to God. It truly comes out in one way or another. But what if there's another way of thinking about it, that here, that God's calling is not to really do great things. Yes, it is great. Whenever God is working in it, I believe that it is great. But it's not for us to define what that greatness is, but it's actually up for God to define. I like this quote by Dr. Stephen Garber. He says this, In the daily rhythms for everyone, everywhere, we live our lives in the marketplaces of this world, in homes and neighborhoods, in schools and on farms, in hospitals and businesses. And our vocations are bound up with the ordinary work that ordinary people do. 
We're not great shots across the bow of history. Rather, by simple grace, we're hints of hope. As Garber says, what if the call for us is not to do these great things for God, but is to, in the very ordinary moments of every single day, in the faithfulness of your schooling, of your relationships, of your marriage, of your friendships, of your work, in all parts of life, in your retirement, in those moments that we live out in life, we're just called to be hints of hope for all people to see. That they see that there's just something different about you because of your faith in Jesus. What if it's not about building great programs and great churches and filling up the pews and, and, and designing amazing pieces of the church that all perfectly fit together, but it's about building and, and growing deep disciples that are rooted in Christ that are able to, to transform the world through the little that they do, one part at a time. And we're just called to be faithful in the little and to be hints of hope in the places we've been placed. In fact, it's all part of God's plan as we live out our lives, as we try to lean towards him. Why? Because as God is the one building the house, we see that the house God builds is built upon his sovereignty. That if we let God build and we let God be the foundation, it's only goodness that comes. He doesn't lead us astray. He only has goodness uh, as understood by the gospel and by, by, by God himself, there's only goodness that awaits because of his sovereignty. We, re- we read in verse 8 to 11, Now then, tell my servant David, this is what the Lord Almighty says, I took you from the pasture, from tending the flock, and appointed you ruler over my people Israel. I've been with you wherever you have gone, and I've cut, cut off all your enemies from before you. Now I'll make your name great, like the names of the greatest men on earth, and I will provide a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they have a home of their own and no longer be disturbed. Wicked people will not oppress them anymore as they did at the beginning and have done ever since the time I appointed leaders over my people Israel. I will also give you rest from all your enemies. The house God builds is built upon his sovereignty. What makes me say this? Did you catch it in the passage that we just read here? I tried to fit in four alliterations, or, well, yeah, starting with P. Uh, Did you catch how God, before David, before he did anything for God, before he is king, God says, I have been with you already. He talks of his presence. I've cut off all your enemies. Talks about this protection that God gives. Talk about this placement in history. Now I'll make your name great. Not because of anything that he has done, or anything that he has earned, but I will just do it. Of a provision, I will provide a place for my people that through God and his sovereignty, the house that he's built is built upon this foundation of presence, protection, placement, and provision. Then no matter what we think, even though it may not seem to be the true, a truth for us, it may not be the reality for you right now, God has sustained and will continue to uphold his church, and his people, no matter what goes on from one covenant to the other, from one generation to the other, from throughout the all of human history, God is faithful and true. And it's before anyone has deserved anything, has done anything, before you were even born, he has done all of this. This is the promise that God has made. The house God builds is built upon his sovereignty. But do we recognize that? Or do we try to earn it ourselves? And do we try to live it out in our own way? Do we see God's goodness in our lives? His presence, his protection, his placement, his provision. 
had a, had a conversation this week uh, as I was sharing. I came across like, hey, how long have you been serving full-time at Lord's Love? I'm like, well, it's coming up. Uh, it's 10 years. Uh, and it's like, oh, that's great. It's not a short amount of time. I'm like, well, it's not long in terms of his, uh, like eternity uh, either. It's like, wow, you're so wise. I'm like, not really. <laughs> uh, people have just told me that uh, to humble me. Uh, so... Uh, and it's like, oh, yeah, but what have, uh, what, what, what have you learned? I'm like, you know what? I've learned throughout the 10 years how selfish I am. It's like, what do you mean? Like, you should be celebrating. I'm like, no, I've learned just how the ways that I want and what I desire for the church, it starts off in this great place, but soon somehow because of my deep sin inside of me, it, it twists it around and, and, and turns into something that's ungodly. It's like, well, is the church... Uh, where you thought it would be in 10 years. Uh, in 10 years of ministry, is this where you th- thought the church will be? I'm like, I'm not sure what that means. I'm not sure what I have imagined the church uh, to be. But I'm reminded, even through all of this, that as we're hints of hope, as God will call his church and he'll do with what he will, the impact that we make in the church, in South Hill, in our families, in the relationships that we have, the short interaction you have with that person at work, that if we think with this eternal mindset, God, if we think with the eternal mindset, we'll see it from God's perspective that he's already working, that he's doing something there. As Evelyn shared about working out, that even though those moments you work out and you feel like you have done nothing, it's doing something. That God is at work even in our everyday, in the struggle, in the highs and in the lows, that God, he is sustaining and upholding and moving and working, whether we recognize it or move it or we acknowledge his presence or not. Why? Because this is all grounded upon his covenant. I hope you're getting a little bit deeper and deeper and deeper as you dive into this passage. The house God builds, it's built upon his word. The covenant in which he has spoken over his people Second part of verse 11, we read this, the Lord declares to you, uh, the Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name and I will, I will establish the throne of his kingdom uh, forever. I will be his father and he will be my son. When he does wrong, I will punish him with a rod wielded by men with floggings inflicted by human hands, but my love will never be taken away from him as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. Nathan reported to David all the words of this entire revelation, this unveiling that he has received uh, from God. Scholars have noted that this is a prophetic message, the whole thing, but also explains how later on why the kingdom of Israel will be split into north and south because of the unfaithfulness of the future kings that come from the lineage of, of David, especially through the next line in Solomon and, and, and his unfaithfulness uh, there. But we see here four times that the word established comes into being. We read it four times, it speaks into how God he is the actor. He is the foundation. He is the one undergirding all things. This, this covenant, this promise is written by God himself, not just by anyone, but by God himself. It comes from his own hand. It is established because God says it will be established. 
that you may not trust in your own emotions and your own feelings and your own circumstances and what's going on in life, but we can surely trust in the words of God. And what does he say to David here? What are the parts of the promises of the covenant? I'm not sure if you can read that. But it promises in verse 11, the dynasty, the Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house that, you know what, I'm going to continue on with you. I'm going to continue to work through your family for generations to come. This is promise of his dynasty that, that is set up. Verses 12 to 13, this promises of this, not just a dynasty here, but this eternal kingdom. When your days are over and you're with your ancestors, you're buried in the grave, I'll raise up from your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I'll establish this kingdom, his kingdom. And he is the one, verse 13 is key, he is the one who will build a house for my name and I will, I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So this promise of eternity, not just uh, this, this, uh, this earthly perspective of just one generation, two generations, but eternally forever. And in verse 15, this commitment to David, this commitment, this deep love, that this love would never be taken away from him. I'll never leave him nor forsake him. He will be corrected. And that kind of shows us that the correction uh, for his lineage and for Solomon, maybe for us, is actually a way of realigning us. But there's this commitment that no matter what happens, I will love him. I will love my people, and I will be with him forever. See, there's this reminder for us, church, that no matter the seasons of the church we go through, the ups and the downs, as a congregation, as the culture shifts and the seasons change, we're reminded through the covenants of God's words, that his words never fail. He didn't fail with Noah. He didn't fail with Moses. He didn't fail with Abraham before Moses. He didn't fail with David. He didn't fail with, with Jesus as he came with the new covenant. He's surely not going to fail with you now. That church, he's not going to fail with you now. He's not going to fail with this church now. He's going to uphold him, uh, uphold you, and uphold the church and uphold whatever it is as a church we go through as a people of God. He's not going to fail his church. And that's the only thing, really, we can depend on. Because people come and go. Humans change. Circumstances change. Cities change. But our Lord endures forever. That, that is our prayer as we go into the 36th year as a congregation. That he will be that foundation. That we continue to trust in the covenants of God, and are we walking in step with him? Do we have this relationship with Jesus? That's the most important thing that we need to hold on to. And this is the idea of legacy here too. We read in verse 13 that he is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Yes, that's talking about Solomon, his son, who's not been born yet, but even more so with Jesus. That Jesus comes from the line of David all the way through, traced all the way back. That Jesus is part of the lineage. We read, all, we read so many aspects, especially in Hebrews 1.8. This is about how Jesus is part of the lineage of, of David. And we see how David doesn't actually get to see the temple get built. But he's called to sow into the lineage, sow into the future of the church, sow into future generations. That's a challenge for you and for me, are you willing to build something for me that you'll never get to see? Oh, man. If we have this eternal perspective, God's asking, are we willing to build something for him that we'll never get to see? 
maybe never get to see. As I was preparing for the word this morning, Doug, are you willing to faithfully go preach to, ch- preach to the church even though you'll never get to see what's going to happen in generations to come? The promise that you feel like he's given to you, Doug, the vision that he's given to you, will you continue to strive and to be faithful even if you never get to see it on this side of heaven? That's the eternal perspective that God is cultivating in me and maybe he's cultivating in you today. I'm reminded of the kids that were singing in the small village in Ghana as we were serving uh, in, in the ministry and just being blessed by these kids. I hear the children sing, because he lives, I can face tomorrow. Because he lives, all fear is gone as they have nothing around them because I know he holds the future and life is worth living. Why? Just because he lives. His covenant is true. His promises are good. And that's what continues to undergird our lives to go on for the next day as a church into the next year to be faithful no matter what happens, what circumstances we face. Quickly, with three application points. Three application points. Number one, trust. There's a trust in God's timing here in this passage. God's timing is perfect. His faithfulness remains constant. God is sovereign over all things. We see this through the, biblical, the arc of the biblical narrative. No matter what happens, no matter how many times the people of Israel fall short and fall to the wayside and all the idols and people and things in the world that they worship an idol, where they even deny God, God is still faithful and his timing is perfect. He holds firm In a moment where they think they couldn't make it, God's like, I will intercede. I will hold on to you because I've been there and my covenant is true. Number two, to find comfort in God's word. Number two, find comfort in God's word. Regular engagement in the scriptures reminds us of his promises. A regular engagement in his his word reminds, uh, reminds us of his promises. We've said this time and time again, 365 times. He says, fear not. In scripture, one for every day. We don't say just you're like, Doug, you're a pastor, so you gotta say read your Bibles. Like, yes. But also I believe it truly that this is the essence for life, that God has given us his revelation, his word, that we find comfort in his word, not just in the good times, but especially in the bad. And number three, the trust in God's timing, regular engagement in his word. Now, number three, live with kingdom values. As we go into this. 36th year, we live with this eternal perspective that when we plan in our ministries, that when we talk with each other, that when we build relationships with one another, the conversations that we have, may they be founded upon the eternal hope of Jesus. Not just for the moment, but to know that we carry the death of Christ in us. We have this eternity inside of us that in in our moments, in our everyday interactions, that we could possibly change the eternity for someone and with someone because we have this eternal perspective where we're not focused on just the here and now, but life is so much more than any of this. So church, we think we're building a house for God. But God is the one building his house and building up his church and building up our lives. That he's been with you before you ever knew it, that you've ever experienced it. May we hold on to that promise this morning. Father, we thank you.
for the goodness of your word. We thank you, Jesus, that you're faithful. No matter where our faith has waned, no matter as a church, God, where we have suffered, no matter the story that we feel like the world is writing for us, God, may we lean into you this morning and to hold on to your promises, God. And may we trust in your word again, in the deep pain of our hearts, in the brokenness of your church, in the ways that we've fallen away, in ways we've denied you time and time again, God, may we hold on and say we believe in you once again, Jesus, that you are good. And may we experience your goodness every single day, not because we have to do anything for you, you have all things, but because we want to be with you and you want to be with us, may we experience your presence every single day in our coming and in our going. And we thank you, God, that you love us no matter what. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.